the quality of business models is what creates value for investors. And so the, what business people have to do is take the creativity of creating a business and, and making a business is a creative process. And then they have to wrap that around a business model. Um, and uh, business models don't have to be that complicated and we all don't have to be that smart to create them, but they just wrap it around that business model. And we just got a better business model each time we did it. And, uh, and that was the goal. Welcome to Entrepreneur's Handbook Podcast, where we share inspiring startup stories with practical takeaways for you, the listener. Today we have with us Chris Volk, who's taken three companies public, two of which he founded. He's managed $20 billion in assets and has now written The Value Equation. How are you doing today, Chris? Emma, I'm just great. How are you? Yeah, for good myself, yeah. It's uh, great to be able to talk to you today as well. Like, as I mentioned in the introduction, though, you've done some pretty incredible things. And what I want to understand is, when you're growing up, when you started out, did you ever think you'd get to where you are? Like, what made you become an entrepreneur in the first place? Where did this all come from? No, I didn't think I'd get to where I was, um, and uh, I don't. I think most entrepreneurs don't. Uh, they uh, um, they embark on a journey, and the journey might start with uh, a job that you have, and somewhere along the line, if you get into leadership, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs perhaps think, well, maybe I should try this myself. I should, I should go out on my own. And, and I left a perfectly decent paycheck from a company to uh, get no paycheck and start a, a business on my own. And in a way, it was kind of a bucket list thing. You know, you, you want to go through your life and you want to look back and say, I did this. I, I created a, a company. And, and had I failed, I would have done what every other person would have done, which is go get another job and, and uh, uh, save money for retirement and do all the things that, that people uh, rightly do. But uh, uh, fortunately, I was successful in my first uh, startup and I did another startup and that was successful. And uh, uh, and then I left that and, and wrote a book. I think that's interesting there is what I hear quite often is it's about what you're going to regret more, right? And would you regret starting your own business? And even if it failed, at least you tried and then you go back and do whatever you're doing and that's not a problem. Whereas if you stay in the business and do what you're going to do anyway, then you'd always wonder, like, what about if I tried? And obviously, it's great that you tried because of where you then got to. But what was that first idea you had? Like, what was the one that made you quit your job and start that first business? Well, we live in a, in a day of specialization, I think, you know, where it really helps if you have a knowledge base. And people, in a way, we all invest in ourselves. I mean, investments are what generate income. And the first investment you ever make is in yourself. And the first return on that is a paycheck. And the people that get to be really rich are the people that are starting to invest outside of themselves. I mean, they're making investments in companies, things, collectibles, real estate or whatever. And and uh, and so I wanted to be able to create a business and, and to uh, start that out and to have the opportunity to create a business. And, um, uh, and you know, in doing that, that, that gave me autonomy and gave me freedom. It, it elevated my personal satisfaction uh, to, to be able to uh, take that path. What, what was the first business you did? So the first business was uh, a business that owned real estate that was leased to people on a long-term basis. So, um, so what I had done, and I think most people that are entrepreneurs do this, they uh, – take the sum of their experiences and they try to use them. They're, they're taking this investment they've made in themselves and they're trying to use it to um, uh, do future things. I mean, everything is kind of a springboard from something else, right? Um, 
And so the first company that I had led and taken public was a company that invested in uh, chain restaurant real estate that was growing very rapidly in the United States in the early 1980s. And it would rent it to franchisees who otherwise might have chosen to own the real estate, but elected to, to rent it. In a way, I, I spent a, a big chunk of my career convincing business people they were way better off having a, a landlord than a banker. And part of the benefit of this was when we put out the $20 billion to all these businesses for their real estate and, and had them as tenants, we were able to produce a lot of millionaires or help produce a lot of millionaires. I mean, they did all the work, but 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 we were able to give them a capital solution that helped really create some wealth for them and for the people that work for them. And at the same time, we were able to build businesses ourselves that created a lot of wealth. And, and that's what kind of gave me the perspective to be able to write a book and say, okay, what are all these things have in common? You know, I mean, seeing all these companies that we've been uh, not only part of, but also financed, what do we see these uh, things have in common? And so uh, when I started the first company, it was also involved in real estate ownership and renting. So sort of a finance company. Um, we changed the, the the market that we went after. So we, we, we changed the real estate types up a little bit. Uh, and then the second company, we got it even more specific. So uh, each of the first two companies we sold. Um, uh, and the third company is still public, although it's uh, being uh, sold right now to the pension fund of uh, Singapore, GIC. Ah, interesting. So what did you learn like, between the different um, startups? Because obviously, some people want to start one business and hold on to it forever. Some people just want to flip it. But I feel like with you, it's an evolution. Like each business, like you said, like it was slightly more niche than the last one or a different area. So what made you kind of start these new businesses? Was it a new challenge or what was the motivation there to become a real entrepreneur? All, all, all businesses solve problems. And, uh, and the best businesses solve pretty big problems that tend to be global. You know, our, our, the problems we solved weren't really global. They were more uh, national than the United States. So, so we would make investments in nearly all 50 states um, with, with hundreds of, and eventually over thousands of, of customers. Um, and uh, uh, so that was, you know, that was the problem we were solving. And we knew that they needed financial, they needed money, I mean, uh, for their real estate. So it was out there. I mean, so, and we knew that we had a way to do this that was um, not a way that other people had done it. And each iteration, when you start a company, each time you do it, you're going to get better at it. I mean, you'll uh, you'll make decisions uh, that uh, are based upon what you used to do. So by the time we did the last company, we're managing one and a half to two times the assets that we did in the first company, but with half the people, or less than half the people. Um, and so we ended up with a much better business model in the last company than we did in the first company. And uh, and the the quality of business models is what creates value for investors. And so the, what business people have to do is take the creativity of creating a business and, and making a business is a creative process. And then they have to wrap that around a business model. Um, and uh, business models don't have to be that complicated and we all don't have to be that smart to create it, but you just wrap it around that business model. And we just got a better business model each time we did it. And, uh, and that was the goal. Was there any mistakes you felt like you made in the early days? that you then like corrected as you went through the businesses like what were the hard lessons in those early days because it feels like you you were successful almost straight away in terms of each business did well and that's quite rare many people have quite a few failures before they're able to get their first business off the ground but was there any smaller mistakes or things that you learned from that made those other companies better like what were the things that made you become more efficient? Well, one of the things that business leaders have to focus on is what are their competencies? I mean, and the competency is 
um, the essence of a business. What makes that business successful? I mean, what what do you do um, uh, that's the successful? So in the first company, uh, for example, we had uh, a group of people that managed all the assets that we did. What they would do is collect financial statements from all of our tenants. We would monitor rent. We would monitor property taxes, that kind of stuff. Um, when we did the second company, we basically took that function and we found that we could actually outsource that function. And, and if you can outsource something pretty easily, it, it becomes a commodity. It's not really a core competency, right? Um, uh, I, in the first company, we had we had to create our whole IT process. So we basically had programmers on staff. We had created all of our servicing software. And, and the thing was that uh, people would come to me uh, from time to time and say, you know, Chris, I need a million dollars for this or I need some money for that. And, and I'm not reading popular mechanics every week or whatnot. I can't sit there and talk to them and say, gee, you know, no, you don't. There's a better solution out there. Uh, and so, uh, I would invariably say, sure, okay, we'll do that. But, uh, but you know, what it meant was that I was partly running an IT shop inside of a finance company, or what otherwise was a finance and real estate company. Um, and so, as uh, uh, IT got just simply better, um, we were able to outsource most of that as well, right? So we didn't have to run an IT shop. Um, the first company we had, uh, we hired a lawyer. Um, that lawyer hired about three more lawyers. We had paralegals. We had all kinds of, we had lots of lawyers. And uh, and every now and then a lawyer would come to me and say, you know, Chris, I solved this great problem for you. And you're lucky I'm here because, you know, without me, I wouldn't have solved, you, you wouldn't have made this money and you wouldn't have had this uh, problem solved. And I'm thinking, am I the luckiest guy in the world? Or is there like somebody in some law firm somewhere that might have solved the problem as elegantly as this, as, as this person did? And the answer was, I didn't know because I'm not a lawyer and I just couldn't. I mean, how do I evaluate that? I'm a business guy. Uh, legal services is not my core competency, right? My core competency is going out and finding real estate properties to invest in and finding good companies to back um, by having good those good tenants, uh, giving those companies service. I mean, there, there are several pieces of core competency that we're going to focus on. And one of them is not having a law firm. And so what we did was we chose not to have a law firm and we chose to outsource all of that because it was not a core competency. I think that business people can get distracted sometimes. I mean, you're a, you're an entrepreneur, you're creative. Uh, all this stuff comes at you all the time and you're going, well, let's do that or let's hire a lawyer or let's hire some IT people. And you're like, no, no, keep it really simple. Uh, be extremely disciplined on what it takes to make your business model work and uh, and decide what your core competencies is, which could be difficult, uh, but spend some time on that. And then if you can do that, you'll end up with a much better business model and you'll end up with richer shareholders, I mean, and a better business. I mean, uh, and so that's what we were able to do over the years. And that gives you some examples for how you're able to take a company from, you know, 250 people that we had in our first business to uh, just a little bit over 100 with the last business. I think that's so important as well, because part of it comes down to wanting control as well, right? Because when it's your company, it's your baby, you want to have it under your control. But as you said, you've got to let it go because you don't know how to run a law firm. And it's not something which is your core competency. And it's something which I think a lot of listeners are going to have to learn the hard way as well, where they're going to try to do things that they shouldn't do. And it's the earlier you can realize that actually, no, you shouldn't be trying to do this or trying to do that. You should focus on what you're good at. The smoother their path will be and 
another thing that happened with you, and you mentioned this before we started recording, is that you actually came up with the value equation that your book is about before you started these companies. Can you tell us about how that came about and how you then applied that in your later companies? Sure. Well, I'm a commercial banker by banking, you know, by, by training. So my, my first six years of my career were spent in commercial banking. And I um, became what a banker might call a credit geek. I became pretty good at reading financial statements and uh, analyzing companies, modeling them out. Um, and so I just started experimenting with financial models over the years and spreadsheets and building financial models for companies. Uh, and my earliest spreadsheets when I was a lot younger were super long and kind of complicated. And as I got older, the spreadsheets just got easier and simpler. And by the time I'm running our last public company, I'm able to talk to investors who are who are major shareholders of our company uh, and present them a financial model that's got 14 variables. So we have a $10, a $10 billion balance sheet and you just have 14 variables and you can whittle that down. And what I learned was that you can actually create a business model with as few as six uh, variables. And and the six is what became the value equation. And I won't go into the value equation for you because you can get the book. But the six is this, the simplest thing you could do is, is, is it's, and they're universal variables and you can whittle it down. And if you can do it to, with six variables, you can about throw away the spreadsheet. I mean, you, you, you stop needing the spreadsheet. Um, and it turns out that uh, in a way, the numbers stop to matter. So the, this, the uh, issue becomes the variables themselves and the relation of the re- relationship of the variables to one another. And, uh, and so that's what I was learning. And I um, was able to create that look and it was the idea of tr- what does it take to create a business model that's going to make our company worth more than a cost to create? That's the bar, you know, and um, sounds really simple, but most companies in the world do not rise to that level. Um, and, uh, and so I'm a big believer if you can do that, then, then really that, that extra value goes to shareholders. That's what really creates wealth from thin air. And, and only companies can do this. I mean, you're, um, they're able to create this wealth wholesale, which is what makes company founders pretty wealthy. Whereas if you're an investor uh, investing in the stock market, you're really buying retail. You know? so, um, and so the question is, how do, you, how do these wholesalers really make the money? And it's by having super business models. And, uh, and there are other things to it too, but the business models are absolutely foundational. And so, uh, so I spent a lot of time focusing on that. I created the value equation in about 2000, wrote, a, wrote an article on it, won a big award. And, uh, and then over the years, I've written lots of other articles and, and disclosed it to shareholders and then ultimately wrote a book. How was the process of actually writing the book itself? Because it's, if it's an idea that you've had for 22 years now, I'm guessing it's very close to your heart and it's very important to you. Did it, was it difficult to go through that process of writing a book? Well, uh, the book started with a video series. So when I'm leading the last company I, I led, I created a video series and uh, and it was at 10 courses uh, on video. The classes weren't all that long. And then we did a seminar, video, video seminar. And I had a publisher look this up and said, well, how many words are in this? And, and uh, you know, can, this is pretty cool. Maybe you could turn it into a book. Um, and so that's basically how it started. And I uh, hadn't really intended to write a book at the outset, but then the video series kind of gave way to that. And um uh, and writing a book is so much different than doing a video series because you need to really put in a lot of stories. So the book's got a lot of stories in it, which kind of drive home um, 
what the equation is and why it matters and and uh, and and how it it can sort of help you craft a business that is more likely to create you know shareholder wealth for both the founders and and uh, and all the employees and stakeholders that work there. I just want to go back to the thing you said about what a successful company is, where it's just creating more value than it costs to create it, right? And the interesting thing is, I can come. It comes to my head straight away. Of all these different companies, maybe raised tens of millions, hundreds of millions, that then fold or never make the money back. Like we had, as we were recording this last week, FTX collapsed. Yes. And what, what they wrote, I think Sequoia wrote off over two hundred million, and like they had billions invested in there. And did it ever actually make that money back for their investors? I'm not even close. No. And sometimes, like you said, things can be overcomplicated and. It's like, how does a company actually produce value that's realizable, that's plausible as well sometimes? Because sometimes I think everybody gets run away by the hype trains as well. And you're using your value equation to pick the companies you're going to work with, with the real estate as well, right? And how, how many companies pass that test when you're looking at them about whether they could create value? Was it something which is quite common or is it something which actually... Most businesses you looked at, you thought, actually, no, this isn't right for them. Well, I think most most job, most businesses in the world are really vehicles for people to have self-employment and autonomy. Um, and there are people that you know create a business. They they go to work every day. They enjoy being part of the business. It makes a living for them. Uh, they draw a paycheck on it. Um, I, the business ends up not really ever being worth more than it costs to create. It's a vehicle for just job creation, not value creation, not wealth creation. Um, and so that's most businesses. And then you have the businesses where you can actually create a business that's worth more than what it costs to create. Uh, in, you know, in the United States, there are 4,000 public companies. So that's it. And then the rest of the companies are all privately held companies. And they don't have the luxury of FTX to run at a loss. You know, they can't be Tesla and run for 10 years with negative EBITDA uh, as, a, as a public company and have that loss funded by other shareholders, right, um, who are doing what? They're, they're banking on a business model that doesn't exist yet. I mean, nobody really knew when, when Tesla was early on getting started, there was conjecture as to how, what the business model might look like over time and how, what the opportunity was. Um, but people were buying into the the speculation, the momentum, the hype of uh, the animal spirits, as John Maynard Keynes would say, of, of being able to uh, invest in a company like this and be a part of that. Um, your average business, whether it's in the US, UK or anywhere else, uh, doesn't have that luxury. It has to actually throw off cash flow. I mean, otherwise it can't get lenders. I mean, nobody's going to lend money to any company or you're going to have a hard time getting investors in a business that doesn't have some uh, ability to, to, to have some cash flow. Um, and so the value equation is based upon looking at companies and sort of dissecting their business models and, and, um, and you're looking at companies not on a hype basis, but like really on a business model basis, which is what Warren Buffett would do if he's looking at a company. I mean, you know, trying to understand how does this thing make money? It's, it's, it's why Warren Buffett was a shareholder in our last company. I mean, we were able to sell people like him and other people that understand business models, why our company made sense to buy stock in. And uh, um, now today in the marketplace, you have people loading on to um, uh, companies that get hyped up uh, and uh, uh, and 
these are not companies that Warren Buffett would buy, not because he doesn't like the business, but because he doesn't really understand the business yet because there is no business model, right? Um, so uh, so for all the people that are entrepreneurs out there, they, they really have to have a, a business model and that's in mind, you know, um, uh, and, uh, uh, and this is what generates wealth for the vast majority of people. I mean, you look at the Forbes 400 list of richest Americans, without exception, every one of those people owe their fortune or their, you know, to, to either they or their family having started a business. And in every single case, those businesses became worth substantially more than they cost to create, you know, without question. Um, but you don't have to be anywhere near the Forbes 400 to be extremely wealthy, you know, either. And, uh, and I'm not anywhere near the Forbes 400, but, you know, I've done fine. And, and, and the whole thing, though, it centers on being an entrepreneur and creating uh, a company that's worth more than what it costs to, to, Put together. Obviously, now that you've created like several successful companies, you've written a book. You, like you said, you've done well financially. What keeps you motivated today? What's like what excites you? What do you love doing now? Well, this is partly a passion. I mean, doing this and, and explaining this to you, and and trying to get other people to to understand how this all works. I mean, there are lots of books that have been written on how people get rich, and all those books tend to center on very important things like uh, you know, limiting your debt, limiting your monthly expenses, uh, uh, setting aside savings so that your money can start to work for you. And all that stuff is very important. But probably two thirds of the millionaires that are out there made their money in business. And there is no book that I know of uh, on how businesses create wealth. So this could be the first one. And uh, and I think that it's pretty important for people to understand, because if you're an entrepreneur and you're understanding this, then it really elevates your chance to be able to create a business that's going to be worth more than it costs to create. If you're looking, if you're not an entrepreneur, you're you're looking to, to accept a job with a company, it might help to really understand, does this business model make a lot of sense? Because if it's a great business model, you're going to get a better paycheck, you'll have better career advancement, you're going to probably uh, have good resume material. Um, if you're an investor, it makes sense to look at business models um, uh, when you're making long-term investments, uh, just buying stocks. So there is no book that does that. So I, I, I wrote the first one and I, I, uh, I'm very passionate about the subject. Like one of the things you mentioned in the book as well about is other people's money and how that helps people to build the businesses that they want to build and create that value. Could you talk a bit about that? Like she's mentioned that there's obviously different ways to do it, right? There's either there's equity, there's debt, there's different types of that as well. How can people listening right now know what the right path is to take? Right. So in the book, there, there are six variables in the in the value equation. And one of them is basically other people's money. Um, and other people's money refers to amounts that you borrow or take from other people where you have to pay sort of an interest or rent number on them. You know, um, And uh, so it could be uh, bank loans. It could be uh, that, you know, the company that I ran bought the real estate that you use and you pay that company rent. So basically that company I ran showed up with all the money for your real estate. So you didn't have to do it. Um, um, and, you, and you look at companies that lease, you know, they could be airlines leasing all their aircraft. I mean, it's it, the, the, the people that own that aircraft are providing capital to the airlines. And so that's other people's money. So I, I try to stay away from financial things like debt and equity and stuff like that and focus on you know, what's other people's money. Now, there's a second type of other people's money, which is on the equity side, because most people just don't have most entrepreneurs starting a company just simply don't have the money to be able to start off the company. So they're going to have to go out and 
find ways of raising capital from other people. And, uh, and, uh, you know, once, once a week, you've got the show, uh, Shark Tank in the United States. And I imagine you get it in the UK where yeah, you have these entrepreneurs that are pitching, uh, uh, a group of, uh, investors on selling them a piece of their business. And the goal is to sell them as little of that business as they can. And so they could keep as much of the business as they can, um, and get these folks to put up some money to get, get the uh, business kickstarted. And, um, and so you have people raising capital uh, on a local basis, just like that, um, where you could have uh, sellers of business taking back notes, or you can have uh, other ways where uh, other people are helping you finance the equity of the business. Since most entrepreneurs that start life don't have money. I mean, Elon Musk graduated from college and uh, couldn't have had any money. And in four years, he created a company and sold it for $400 million. Um, uh, I mean, he's obviously the exception. He's a massive unicorn. But, um, but you know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin were doctoral students at Stanford when they started uh, Google. And, uh, you know, they were students. And, uh, uh, but they created a company and they had an idea. And the interesting thing is you create these companies, you've got an idea that's, that's a brilliant idea. Um, then you have to create a business model around that idea. That's where the trick comes in, in terms of how the wealth gets created. But, you know, you have to sort of uh, figure out how I can get other people to, to help support me. And um, and oftentimes what it amounts to is you have to go and not do it by yourself. You have to have a team of complementary people. It's very hard to get together uh, good management teams and investors love to see that. And with your final business then, the like it's obviously public right now. Could you talk through the business model of that and how that worked and why that was successful? Sure. Well, um, what Store did was Store invested in real estate that was leased to uh, pretty much middle market kind of companies, people that don't have a credit rating. They're not somebody you would know. Uh, so we didn't own the real estate that was rented by uh, Boots or Walgreens. We didn't own the real estate of CVS. We didn't own the real estate of Home Depot or Lowe's Hardware. These are all investment grade large retailers that people love on the real estate front. They think it's great. Um, what we decided to do was to own profit center real estate, meaning that the real estate itself is where people had their sales. So it could have been a fitness club. It could have been uh, a retailer. It could have been a restaurant. It could have been early childhood education. It could have been a veterinary clinic or a manufacturer. We would own that building and rent it to people. And what they would do is they would give us the property level profit and loss statement every single month, you know, uh, every single quarter uh, on the property. So we knew how well these properties were doing, not just how well the companies or the tenants were doing, but how well the properties were doing. And since we owned the real estate that was central to the money making ability of the business, if we owned profitable or profit making real estate, then we were senior to every other creditor in the entire company. So notwithstanding the fact that we had these creditors, uh, these tenants that didn't really have big balance sheets um, in the in the traditional banking type sense. Um, we were senior and that made our uh, credit much better. And then um, there was an economist named Harry Markowitz, who was a father of uh, modern portfolio theory, who basically said that diversity is a free lunch. You know, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. And so if you have a, a super diversified pool of this kind of stuff, then what you're able to do is create kind of an investment grade pool with no investment grade tenants in there, right? I mean, um, uh, which is what we were able to do. And because our returns were so much higher than they would have been had we 
chased after investment grade tenants like Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever, then basically on a, on a risk adjusted basis, we could just knock it out of the park. We could make much better returns than you would otherwise make if you were trying to chase after um, those kind of glorified pieces of real estate. And, um, uh, and so we were able to just uh, create better value. And so then investors like Berkshire Hathaway or Warren Buffett, you know, understood the business model. I mean, they, they got it, you know, they got the fact that we were going to just generate higher rates of return on this. And meanwhile, we had um, condensed our employee. We, we focused on our core competencies on what they were. We limited those core competencies down to just five at the time. Uh, and we just focused on just making those better. We made our business model better. Our, our profit margin was something like 95 percent or operating profit margin. So it was massively huge. Um, and uh, and so the idea was that uh, here we are buying real estate. We're not taking any development risk. We're taking no entitlement risk. We're not buying raw land and building anything. And yet we beat all the benchmarks for all the returns for, you know, against companies that did that kind of stuff um, without having to do it because we created a business model uh, and, and focused on a niche that was uh, uh, not being addressed properly. And looking at those businesses that were renting out your real estate, did you find any trends that were like interesting to you about who was doing well, which areas are doing well? Like, did you find any trends in that regard? Well, we focused on we. I just love businesses where they were um, broad-based industries. I mean, I, I love things like childcare, for example. I don't think childcare is going anywhere. People have to drop their children off, and they have to be cared for. And and when childcare establishments run into financial problems or they go out of business, it's invariably a, a result of just poor management. I mean, which just happens. I mean, you, you have a poor company running a business, but it's. It's not like it's a secular thing where all childcare is having a problem today. Um, restaurants are the same way. I mean, I, I, you know, if we could have uh, tons and tons of chain restaurant operators, um, and every now and then somebody would go out of business, and uh, it was almost always a management issue um, or something had happened to their individual business model. But it wasn't like all restaurants were now riskier. It, um, uh, so, uh, so I think that sometimes that. Risk isn't just with the tenant, but it's also with the industry that you're focusing on. I mean, if you're uh, doing veterinary clinics, I mean, they just, you know, people want to take care of their pets. I mean, they're, they're uh, and there are only so many veterinary clinics out there. I mean, and uh, uh, and so you're dealing with a broad-based business. And by the way, there are no investment-grade players in childcare or veterinary clinics or early child education. I mean, these are in the, in the United States, these are super fragmented industries. And uh, and what's been happening with these, and by the way, a lot of other industries, is that people have been consolidating some of this stuff. So it could be building supply people, whatever. And so they, these things get bigger and, and bigger and, and generate efficiencies by having that, that level of size. And sometimes if you're leaving your child with some uh, child care facility, um, they'll have a name on the door. And that name has never changed for years, but now it's actually owned by some other company that actually operates child care facilities in, in other states and whatnot. And these would be tenants of ours. And uh, so we've seen that kind of uh, expansiveness throughout the United States and that sort of level of entrepreneurship and focused on uh, my favorite is just focused on broad based uh, industries that are less likely to have secular issues. You know, um, when you get into you know, there, there are other industries like convenience stores where people are buying gasoline or, you know, petrol. And uh, and in the wake of electric cars, there are, there are going to be some – some of these are going to be impacted. And, and one has to be mindful of that. Um, uh, if you're investing in movie theaters, you know, um, will streaming impact them potentially, you know. Um, 
doesn't say you don't do some movie theaters or some convenience stores, but you have to be very, very thoughtful about how you're doing this stuff. Um, I actually think that even doing pharmacies, I mean, uh, whether it's a Walgreens or a CVS, I mean, uh, as, as people are looking at trying to control what they spend on pharmaceuticals and whatnot, uh, they're, they're going to try to increasingly cut out middlemen, that kind of stuff. So you're always just looking at trying to sort of see where things are going because they happen, you know, and, um, uh, and you want to try, try to manage that risk. You said a lot of these problems come down to management issues. And obviously, you yourself has managed such huge companies. What have you learned about being a leader that's enabled you to manage these companies so effectively? So I said one is focusing on your core competencies. But what's your leadership style in terms of how you treat people in terms of the uh, delegation you give to your teams as well? There are lots of different types of leadership, you know, and um, uh, there's no one you know, right way, I think, to lead. But there are some basic fundamentals, you know, and um, I'm a big believer that you start off with trying to think about what you're trying to accomplish and and where you want to focus your time, because time is your most valuable commodity. And uh, and that's where you get into trying to hone down your core, you know, your core competencies. And then you're getting a leadership team of core leaders to buy into that. And most likely once a year, you're doing a leadership retreat. Uh, and sometimes you might do a company retreat where you're having uh, lots of people um, talk about what they're good at, what they're not good at, and, and what the competencies are, what's going right and what's going wrong, because these things change, you know, and, um, and, you know, Peter Drucker devised this thing called management by objectives years ago. And, um, uh, and I'm kind of a, a believer in it, but a lot of these things, I tend not to work in companies because people don't focus on the big problems and they don't focus on really what the core competencies are, which pervade that you have to sort of avoid all the silos. So you have to avoid all the departmental silos because the core competencies, uh, encompass the entire enterprise. And so it's just really important to have, those really hard conversations and those hard decisions. And then when you get people together every year and they're buying off on, on the core competencies, um, that's where companies start to work better because I can't really tell people who to hire and who not to hire. I mean, you start a company, I find companies are like organic life forms. You start them and then, you know, a few weeks later, you're walking down the hallway and you're running into people you've never met before and uh, uh, because they've been hired by other people. And so companies tend to grow and and the, the cells are splitting and the companies are getting bigger and bigger and um and so the thing you have control over as a leader is focusing on the big picture stuff you know and then letting other people uh carry that out and then having them buy into the big picture stuff every year and as to how you treat people i mean uh, uh it's it, it all comes down to golden rule i mean you treat people as you would want to be treated and uh and if you can do that uh and do it respectfully then You'll have employees that want to be there and uh, want want to contribute. They want to build something with you, and um, uh, and that's that that's been the fun of it. Did you have like a favorite phase of your career? Because you've obviously done the three different startups. You're now in a different place now. We're almost giving back more, and in many ways, I could just tell early in the interview when you were talking about that about how passionate you were about kind of passing that knowledge on about you've had the different success you've had. But would there ever be another startup for you in the future? Or do you think now you're more focused on guiding other people? I, I haven't ruled a startup out, um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't need the money. 
<laughs> so, so, um, and, uh, and I've done the startup, you know, so I don't have to doing another startup is not going to add to my personal life satisfaction. Uh, my life satisfaction started really with the first startup, which is just, you know, can I do this? You know, and, and I, and I could, you know, um, and, um, so, I. Uh, uh, so if I do another startup, it's going to be for a specific reason. Um, uh, I am helping other companies out and uh, I expect to sort of, you know, be engaged with helping other companies out. In the meantime, I'm talking to university students and and others about about this path, you know, because um, really, I, you know, when people get out of university, they don't really, by and large, know how to read financial statements. Um uh, and I would find that we would hire people. We'd have to sort of instruct them how to read financial statements. They they can calculate a net present value or an IRR. They can they could focus on finance and they kind of know how to do stuff. But none of them have gotten up at a high level, at a big picture, and looked at a company and say, well, how did this thing create so much wealth? Like how did Larry Page make so much money? <laughs> um, and uh, and the answer is it's not super, super complicated and uh, and it all sits down in the business model. And so uh, my goal today is to sort of get people to sort of look at companies from a higher level, a different perspective than is taught in graduate school or undergraduate school when it comes to business uh, and to give them a, a, a different device to use. And um, and so that's what the value equation uh, hopes to do. Do you hope some someday that the value equation itself is actually taught at university? So let's say in like 50 years time, where it's part of almost the education where every graduate, everybody who wants to study business, some days learns that evaluation, learns how to read financial statements the right way. That's my, that's my hope. And I, I and what I'm doing today is I'm working with uh, a few universities to potentially get this done at a, a sort of a capstone course level. I mean, when you're taking uh, these graduate studies, a lot of times there's a final course that puts a lot of this stuff together. I mean, uh, um, and again, you know, uh, going back to sort of Peter Drucker, Management by Objectives, when you get into Management by Objectives, the objective is to create value. You know, I mean, um, and and every company, if, you, if you're re-engineering their books on corporate re-engineering, re-engineering the business and stuff, um, if you're re-engineering a business, the reason you're doing it is because you're trying to improve the business model. I mean, there is one overriding reason why all this stuff gets done, you know, and uh, and at the end of the day, it comes down to six variables, you know, um, and those six variables are part of three corporate efficiencies. So companies have to be, you know, operationally efficient. They have to be very efficient with the assets they use. So they use as few assets as they can. And then they have to have a capital stack, you know, which is the OPM equation that's super efficient. And uh, and business leaders have to harness those three efficiencies and those six variables. And that's what management by objectives is all about. That is the objective. Looking at universities and what people are being taught, is there anything else that you wish that people who came to you, they knew beforehand or people starting businesses were taught rather than making the same mistakes that a lot of people then make? Well, a lot of times people I find get out of school and they've uh, studied business, they've studied finance, for example. They've uh, not had to write many papers. Uh, uh, and their critical thinking skills are limited. You know, um, uh, when you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs tend to have, or they tend to develop pretty good critical thinking skills. Um, and part of being an entrepreneur is coming to uh, the acknowledgement that the world is a fairly ambigu ambiguous place and that not everything works 
like it's supposed to. It, it, I mean, what they told you in finance class doesn't really always work, you know, um, and uh, the markets are not as efficient as people think they are. And I mean, if they were as efficient, why would we be uh, beating the broader benchmarks over a long term period of time with tenants that are less interesting than the investment grade tenants? I mean, why would that happen? I mean, uh, it's because they aren't that efficient. I mean, it's, and so you have to have people that focus on this and stand back. So it requires an analytical framework. And sometimes when I'm looking at business students, I sometimes think that they'd be better off taking a philosophy class sometimes or studying some Shakespeare uh, because, uh, and certainly, I mean, you studied economics. So, so economics is terrific because no economics economists agree on anything. So, um, uh, and that's perfect, you know, because in the world, that's how the world operates. There's a lot of uh, uh, issues in terms of uh, things just not working as they're supposed to. And then the final thing is that I find that people out of schools, probably could be taught better communication skills. I mean, how to sell, how to get people excited about investing with them, um, uh, you know, how to, how to close a deal. Um, and uh, uh, there's not enough of that that happens at, uh, at the uh, education level. I think it's interesting that what you said about economics as well, because one of the things I think a lot of people miss about economics, they learn the models, but they forget about, we're always taught the assumptions, right? So this model has these assumptions and those assumptions are never true in, real, in the real world. And that's where the fun comes into is, okay, so if this assumption isn't true, then what happens to this model? And when you start thinking in that way, that's where economics could be useful. If you're trying to take the perfect competition market, let's say, like you said, where alloc- like capital is allocated perfectly, then you shouldn't be able to beat the market. But like I said, capital isn't allocated perfectly. There are all these different ways you can arbitrage where things are overvalued and things are undervalued. And that's where you can make a difference. But it's that comes down to the idea, like you need to challenge those assumptions that a lot of people's models are based on. And in that way, you can then generate that extra return. Well, the other thing that's so important in economics is behavioral economics, right? And um, and behavioral economics basically disrupts all the models. I mean, because people don't act rationally, you know, I mean, uh, and that was basically the foundation of Kahneman and Tversky studying this stuff. People just don't behave as you expect them to. And, and a lot of economic models are based upon rational behavior. I mean, uh, uh, and uh, uh, so now you have to, you have these people, I mean, who've won, you know, uh, kind of won a Nobel prize for this. And he's not even an economist, he's a psychologist, you know, so, um, and uh, uh, because that's so, such an important part of it. And I find that's true in real estate. Like uh, uh, just hypothetically, I mean, people, you know, there's this kind of this notion that somehow I know a good piece of real estate when I see it kind of thing. I mean, uh, because everybody thinks that they fancy themselves an expert on real estate. And uh, and so they'll look at a glorious building in, in downtown London or whatever, and they'll think, well, this is this is a marquee piece of real estate. This is a franchise piece of real estate. I, I, whoever owns this must be the luckiest person ever. And the thing is that sometimes the f- fanciest buildings um, are just horrible businesses. I mean, uh, and people just pay an arm and a leg to be able to own a marquee property, whereas you'd just be better off owning the veterinary clinic in a small town. I mean, uh, and and doing much better on it over time. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's pretty dispassionate. It's an investment, um, and uh, but it's the behavioral economics piece that gets to people. It's the, it's that uh, predisposition to liking um, the the physicality of an asset and having that physicality just destroy your whole economic perspective on on whether it's a good deal or not a good deal. We're getting towards the end of the interview now. And what I want to do is give you an opportunity to shout out three entrepreneurs who you think 
have taught you a lot or inspire you or, or maybe on the up. You've got the choice there. You can shout out three people that you think are doing well or people should be paying attention to to learn from. Well, I always think that, that when you're t- looking at entrepreneurs, I, I always just start off with the richest people out there. Um, not because they're the best role models per se, but they're kind of the litmus test for where are the best businesses today, right? Um, so if you look at the Forbes 400, for example, 25% of those companies are asset management companies. They manage, you know, uh, venture capital, private equity, uh, stocks and bonds, whatever. I mean, these are asset management businesses. That's 25% of the Forbes 400. And it turns out that asset management is a heck of a business, you know. Um, a lot of them aren't at the very top. They're not the tech guys, but they but they do pretty well. Um, so, you know, whether it's uh, Leon Black or Schwartzman or Cobra uh, 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 Kravis, I mean, all these people are pretty they're all impressive and and and, and so many more. Um, uh, and then as you get into the technological game, uh, you know, I think that there's been no better business model than, than Google. Um, I you know, Steve Jobs is obviously iconic. I mean, the thing about Steve Jobs is he, he came into a company in 1997 that was losing money that he founded. And uh, by 2022, turned, you know, the company's now worth, gone, it gone, went from a $2 billion net worth to a $3 trillion net worth. And along the way, it bought back a boatload of stock, you know, I mean, so that if you had sort of included that, it would be even all the much higher. And, um, and he did it by re-engineering a business. I mean, which I think is much harder than founding a business. I mean, I founded, you know, I started, I took a public company public and then started two more that were somewhat similar. So in a way I was associated with three companies and each one I could start and start from scratch. You know, um, if you have a company and, and uh, there are a lot of seasoned companies out there where things aren't working well, the business model has shifted. Uh, the world is, has moved away from you a bit. And this is what happened to Apple. And um, and they start losing money. And then you have to make the really, really hard choices about what you're going to do, what your core competencies are going to be, what products you dump, uh, what, sh- what employees you have to lay off, you know, um, and how you're going to reorganize that business and what you're going to focus on. And what he did in going from $2 billion net worth, you know, uh, equity value to $3 trillion, is unheard of. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's it's, it's uh, incredibly rare because it's so difficult to re-engineer a business. Um, whereas there are companies, for example, if you think about a Netflix uh, versus a blockbuster video, um, everybody knew that things were going to be streaming. It was coming down the pipe. Uh, blockbuster failed to seize on that um, because they had a lot of different pressures. They couldn't make the change. Uh, Netflix obviously did seize on it. Um, and so the idea of re-engineering a business, because they Netflix had to be re-engineered to do that, and and to do that and uh, make that into something is just an incredible accomplishment. So um, uh, obviously these are people that I think just did a, a fabulous job, and and they're known to so many of us, but they they share lessons that work at much much smaller businesses, and so I think that that's what's that, that's the importance of looking at those kinds of entrepreneurs because we're not going to all be at that level. I mean, I'm not I'm certainly not at that level. Um, but I've done well in, at the level I'm at. And um, and some of that comes from the inspiration I've seen from those people. It's been fascinating to talk to you today. And we're going to put the link to your book in the show notes as well. But if people want to learn more about you and what you're up to, where should they go to? Uh, you can go to thevaluation.com. Uh, and it's so www.thevaluation.com. And uh, 
Uh, and it's got all kinds of uh, information on, on the book. And it's got some materials, too, that are supporting. So some spreadsheets and some other materials that are supporting. It's got the book's won uh, eight awards so far, so you can go through those. It's got um, uh, a lot of articles that I've been publishing, and I've got some more articles coming out. And uh, so I'd be happy to do that. And I'm on LinkedIn, of course, and you can find me that way. And so if any of your listeners want to uh, contact me personally, they can reach out. Perfect. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Hammer, I enjoyed it.